Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Hopeful Environmentalists, a podcast where we discuss hope in the climate space with amazing guest speakers. It's your host, Taylor Gannis, and today we have an incredible episode talking about forest fires, how they start, why they start, how climate change is making them worse, how colonization plays a role in the forest fires that we're seeing, the unprecedented forest fires. And we talk about just a lot of things that I, myself, as someone who doesn't really know much about fires, I let's just say I learned a lot. I learned a lot, which is what this podcast is for. So I really hope that you learn a lot as well with our incredible guest speaker. Our guest speaker today is Jessica McFarland, who is a dual master's student in ecology and environmental management at Western Colorado University. She studies extreme fire spread events and their landscape outcomes in the southwestern United States to understand post-fire forest resilience. She also works as a community organizer for the Gunnison Public Lands Initiative and serves as a student advocate and DEI coordinator for her master's program. Jessica completed her Bachelor of Science in Biology with an emphasis in ecology, evolution, and behavior from the University of Texas at Austin. She has three years of experience with public land agencies in the Alaska region, working as a research assistant on the Tongass National Forest for the U.S. Forest Service and as a data management technician for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. She's an intersectional environmentalist who has organized protests against fossil fuel companies in the past and advocates for environmental justice in the sciences and beyond. In her downtime, she loves to spend time hiking or paddling with her rescue pup named Tapo, playing guitar, and snowboarding. So without further ado, I'd love to welcome our guest speaker, Jessica. Okay, so hi. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. So happy to have you on. Hi, Taylor. Thank you so much for having me. So you study fire, and I think that's so intriguing because I know nothing (laughs) about fire. So (laughs) how did you get into studying fire, wildfires? Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's okay. That's a great question. So um, just, I guess, to start off, I am a dual master's student at Western Colorado University. So I'm pursuing my master of science in ecology and my master in environmental management. Um, I'm a big believer in kind of marrying those two together because I think just doing science is not quite enough to like integrate change, but sometimes management doesn't always um, get informed by like, you know, the the most current science. And so um, I'm here at Western Colorado University in Gunnison, Colorado. And um, I got started studying fire. My current advisor, Dr. Jonathan Koop actually approached me when I got accepted into my program. Um, I have a history of studying forest ecology. I worked on the Tongass National Forest in Alaska for two years where I was looking at second growth management strategies. And um, yeah, there's obviously not a lot of fire that happens in a coastal temperate rainforest. So I'm kind of new to fire as well. Uh, But yeah, he approached me and asked, you know, what I would be interested in studying. And um, it was actually pretty salient for me. Just a few months back, my cousin in Boulder, Colorado had to be evacuated by the Marshall Fire. So if you're not familiar, this fire blew up on like December 30th, I think, like very end of the year, which is in and of itself just a wild time for a fire to happen. Um, That late in the winter, it was kind of this combination of um, dry fuels and a lot of uh, heavy fuels that had kind of uh, corresponded from a lot of rain earlier that season. 
And this fire gave my cousin like 20, 30 minutes to like pack up all of his important belongings and get out. And um, from what I remember, my aunt telling me it missed his house by like a street or two. So that was like, especially powerful for me to know that like, not only is fire greatly impacting our ecosystems and our communities, but it's like has a personal impact for my family and the people that I hold dear. And um, yeah, I, I started getting started in my research and uh, I made this generalization to my mom one time and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I, I don't, we didn't really grow up around fire. And she's like, what are you talking about? Because um, when I was little, I kind of, it jogged my memory that we lived in Mesa Verde National Park or, or near Mesa Verde. My dad worked for the park when I was a little kid, when the 2000 fire happened. And then I also remember being evacuated for a fire when we lived in uh, the Denali National Park area when I was also little. So um, yeah, I, I guess I have been kind of shaped by fire and the people that I care about have been shaped by fire. And so um, I thought it was just a really important topic to study. Well, thank you for sharing that, you know, personal note. And I'm so sorry to hear about your cousin. I'm so glad they're okay. Um, yeah. yeah, I think, you know, for myself, like I've never been really surrounded by fires and I know with climate change that could change. Um, but yeah, New York, there there's small fires happening and I don't, I never really fully understood them. Um, so thank you for, you know, being on here again and educating us about it. So can you tell us a little bit about your research regarding wildfires? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, just for a little context, um, in, in 2022, my advisor put out a paper on extreme fire spread events in the West. And essentially this paper found that um, extreme events accounted for 70% of total area burned in fire prone regions of the West over the last two decades. Um, and so these extreme events are like, you know, kind of thinking about these big blow ups, like these big single day runs um, that are consuming a lot of area and moving very quickly. And we define an extreme fire event generally by like rapid rates of spread and this erratic and unpredictable behavior. So some fires, at least in my state, that would fit that bill would be like the East Troublesome Fire, for example, that happened in 2020. And it had this incredible and scary single day run of 100,000 acres in a single day. Um, so it super crazy um, behavior. Um, this kind of behavior is increasing with climate change and past land use legacies. And so, um, yeah, so this paper kind of ended up driving um, what I'm trying to research right now, which is looking at these extreme fire spread events and their connection to burn severity and how they're impacting the landscape. So particularly what we do is we use satellite imagery to um, create these day of burning maps so we can kind of look at a fire and detect like how much acreage it might have burned in a single day and then go back in and do some other analysis to see like, okay, well, um, what, what was it doing on the landscape? So burn severity is essentially the above and below ground organic matter consumed by fire. And we typically, there, there's a few different ways to measure it, but the way that we measure it is using this metric called composite burn index, which ranks it from uh, zero to three. So zero being unburned and three being like a high severity. Um, so I am looking at burn severity patterning on these extreme fire spread event days. And what we're finding is that, and it's 
kind of intuitive, but it's actually never really been dug into in the literature. But we're finding that these extreme fire spread events are absolutely resulting in higher burn severity. They're resulting in a higher proportion of area burned at high severity. And they're also resulting in higher percent like adjacency of high severity areas. And so kind of like summing all of that together, um, it, it's kind of reflecting this, uh, this trend that extreme fire spread events are creating these like larger areas of high severity, these like more homogenous patches. And um, burn severity is particularly interesting in the context of forest resilience and forest recovery because high severity area burned has a lot less likelihood of coming back to the forest it once was. Um, so some other research out of my lab shows that, um, you know, uh, area burned at high severity can sometimes lead to um, vegetation type conversion. Um, it can uh, really limit seed dispersal. Um, and uh, especially when you have this like giant high severity patch on the landscape, it might not have surrounding trees to really like germinate and project their seeds. Or maybe the soil is going to be a little too impacted to really nurture that seed into a seedling and to have that forest rebound. And so all of that is to say um, that these extreme fire spread events are um, can be really catastrophic, not just for communities, but for the future of our forests in the West. And so um, that is some of the stuff that I'm digging into. And I recently just wrote a grant trying to extend this research um, to look at some of the, the different environmental factors that might modulate these events. So we can think about like, how does forest type maybe impact these events or how does the presence of streams or roads modulate these events how does canopy cover or prior burns or fuel treatments maybe modulate these events and um i'm hoping to number one um you know get the grant but <laughs> number two to be able to kind of put all this information together to kind of help with the resilience of our communities um, you know, being able to kind of outline these like key points of like what might make an extreme fire spread event more likely or less likely, we can kind of pass that off to fire managers or, um, you know, first responders and be able to um, maybe improve evacuation measures or improve post-fire forest recovery or identify areas that might need some uh, fuel mitigation so that these events aren't as severe in the future. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a, a big uh, overview of what I'm doing and it's still in progress, but um, yeah, we're feeling pretty good about it. Well, I hope you get that grant. That, <laughs> that would be amazing because I just feel like, you know, everything you just said is like looking at how when we change landscapes, how that might affect fires. And I think that's so important to look at and making sure that we are advancing how we manage lands. Um, so I really hope you get that, that grant. Um, but you also, you discussed seed dispersal a little bit. Um, yeah. And how I learned about how sometimes fires can actually help seeds, like, like you just said, disperse and then also help certain, some seeds can only grow with fire or something. Like yeah. I heard something like that. Is that true? That is true. Yeah. So um, the term is called serotony. It's, uh, it's a term that basically means that the cones of these conifers um, actually will open, they have this like waxy resin. So the, so the kind of like the, 
Um, the species that I would attribute this to most to, and it's not just limited to, is lodgepole pine, uh, Pinus contorta, and we have that all over the West. And there are other species in California that I'm not as familiar with that are also serotonous. But essentially, um, these, these cones are like sealed shut with this waxy resin. And they a lot of times can only germinate with extreme heat that would come from a wildfire. And so lodgepole pine are a species, among other species that we have in the West, that are fire adapted. And not just fire adapted, but they kind of need fire to proliferate and survive and kind of like fulfill their like ecological duty in a way. And, and not all lodgepole pine are like that. I learned that it's genetic. So like not every single lodgepole pine out there is going to be like that, but it is a, a fire adapted trait. Other trees that we have in the West, like ponderosa pine, have this thick fire resistant bark and this ability to self prune their lower limbs, which helps them be more resilient to wildfire. Um, aspen as well. Uh, they are um, known to like maybe not be as as flammable and proliferate greatly after fire through resprouting through their root system. And actually some other research that my lab is looking at right now, um, which is really cool and we're still kind of like combing through the details, but we're exploring the idea of aspen functioning as a natural firebreak. So this is um, kind of a concept that managers use pretty regularly. Like it, it doesn't hold up as much under extreme conditions, but aspen are typically um, just like a little bit more of like a wet forest. Um, their like water content and their trunks is higher. And just being a deciduous forest, like the fire behavior is different when interacting with these like compared to a dry coniferous forest. And um, so we're exploring whether or not we could maybe use Aspen, you know, as a natural fire break. And for me, that's kind of like a kind of like a, I guess, a hopeful environmentalist like point, you know, is just like thinking about ways that we can be creative to mitigate wildfire um, and kind of like using what we have um, to be able to like make our forests and our communities a little bit more resilient to these extreme events. Um, but still still in the process of figuring all that out, don't have any findings to share, but um, it is really cool and, and really inspiring to know that um, there's a lot of people doing amazing research like this as well to just kind of figure out how we can um, safeguard our communities, our first responders and our forests in the future. Yeah. And when we think about solutions, just like you said, they need to be creative. So that's so that's such a creative idea. And it's so cool. So thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, that was awesome. Um, so, you know, I feel like I should have asked this in the beginning, but what is a wildfire and how does a wildfire start? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in layman's terms, a wildfire is essentially kind of like this unplanned and initially uncontrolled fire event. Um, that typically occurs in um, wildlands or among the wildland urban interface. Um, it es essentially like a fire kind of requires three things and it's called the fire triangle. So it's fuel, oxygen, and heat. And, um, you know, obviously we're always going to have oxygen and, but, but the thing is, is that heat and fuel really have been exacerbated through um, this combination of climate change and our human land use legacies um, that are essentially kind of like driving our fire behavior to be more severe. We're seeing more frequent fires, we're seeing longer fire seasons, and um, I can comb more into like the details of that as well, but, but overall that is kind of like what makes a wildfire. 
Yeah, I would love to, you know, talk about that a little bit. Like, why are we seeing such devastating forest fires that we haven't seen before? You know, I've seen in the news, like, oh, this is like by far the worst we've seen in this region or they're lasting longer. Why are we seeing this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and one thing I'll say is, is it's incredibly devastating. Um, you know, the the modern fire behavior and the impact that it has on communities. Like we've seen throughout the news just this year, like the fires in Canada, they had more acreage burned this year than any time in recorded history. We saw the the absolute travesty of the Lahaina fire, um, and in Greece and Spain, and it's just like it seems like all over the world, people are having this issue. Um, so what I will say is, while at least my my focus is North America and Western North America in particular, and we can kind of think back to like some of these ecosystems are fire adapted, um, climate change and land use legacies have really kind of shifted what we call the historical range of variability. And so that for me, you can kind of think about what that might have been like, like pre-colonialism. Um, but essentially, climate change um, is making, I guess, like, the best way for me to phrase it is climate change is making drought more likely, these increased temperatures a lot more likely. And um, this combination is really drying out our landscapes to making them a lot more flammable. So if you think in the context of our fuels and our forests, we have, you know, this increased vapor pressure deficit, we have this increased drought stress in our trees. And so climate change is and also just kind of like thinking about drying up natural water resources, you know, that that forest might have. There, there's a lot of like players and parts, but I think overall um, climate change is just making our forest drier. Yeah, essentially climate change is making our fuels more arid and our trees are more drought stressed and that is making our landscapes a lot more flammable. However, it's important to note that just climate change alone is not the indicator for why our forests are seeing fires in this way. Um, it's, it's essentially like the consequence of our land management legacies. And so when we talk about that, there's a lot of things that we can say about that. The number one being fire suppression. Um, over the last hundred years in the United States in particular, we've had um, our management strategies being just put the fire out, you know, at any means possible. This whole concept about the 10 a.m. rule. Um, and this has been the attitude for over a century now. So we have fire suppression in areas that, you know, like we talked about earlier, a lot of our ecosystems need fire. Um, that's kind of creating this buildup of fuel. Um, also, another land management legacy that kind of connects to this is the fact that we've done a lot of clear cut logging or the removal of large fire resistant trees. Um, I can really attest to this with some of my work on the Tongass, but when you're clear cutting a forest, all of these trees are kind of competing for the same resources and end up growing up really tall, really skinny and really dense together. Um, you're not getting the heterogeneity of a natural forest, um, you know, that might have like a tree fall down and then something grows up in its place. And then there's like this natural succession. Um, it's really just creating this like rapid competition and making our fuels a lot denser and less resilient to fire. Um, so that's another land management legacy that's kind of conferring to wildfire behavior these days. 
And um, another big one, obviously, and I can talk more about this, is um, the omission of cultural burning and the extirpation of Indigenous people from their natural and historical landscapes. You know, Indigenous people all throughout the Americas and, and all, all throughout the world, you know, especially I'm familiar with Australia, but um, they manage their landscapes with fire to, um, you know, potentially increase and improve wildlife habitat for hunting. Um, they used fire to um, produce culturally important plants and um, also just used fire as like a, a traditional and spiritual practice, you know, the whole concept of fire as medicine. And, um, you know, the, this accumulation of all of these different land management strategies, like when I'm writing papers or when I'm diving into the research, I feel like I have to really spell all of these things out. But at the end of the day, like it can be summed up in a single word and that is colonialism. And if I could say anything about this work is that we can't talk about wildfire without talking about colonialism and the impacts that um, are the way that we've managed our landscapes and the way that we've forced indigenous knowledge and caretakers off of our landscapes is absolutely a big part of while we're seeing the wildfires we're seeing today. I love that you just added that, you know, talking about how we can't talk about wildfires without talking about colonialism. I think that's mm -hmm. the name of this episode, to be honest. Um, yeah. It's, that's powerful. And it's true. You know, people who've been on this land for hundreds and hundreds of years know how and have been the stewards of this land. So thank you for adding that. And it's great to hear that that is being incorporated in how we continue to think about fire and how we can, how we look forward to the future in land management and how indigenous knowledge needs to be incorporated in how we Absolutely. move forward. Um, so thank you for adding that and kind of touching on that now, you, you know, you talked about a little bit and how people use fire for, for cultural reasons and for good. So are there good and natural forest fires? Yeah, I would say there definitely are. And, you know, I think it's really natural that our society has an aversion to fire because of, you know, some of the, the ways that we're seeing fire play out on our landscapes, especially within the last hundred years. But yes, there absolutely is good fire. Like I said, you know, a lot of our ecosystems are adapted to fire. I actually, we have a fire burning um, here in Gunnison this summer that ignited on like July 26th or something. And it blew up like 600 acres in a day, which was kind of fast, but it's kind of petered out. And, um, you know, they've had a lot of good management on the ground and they're actually letting the fire burn naturally into the wilderness. And so, you know, this is doing an ecosystem service to kind of clearing out some of these dense fuel loads and maybe renewing the landscape. I mean, fire ecologically, you know, also can restore nutrients to the soil and give opportunities for other plants to um, begin their successional stages. Um, so, so I really would say that is quote unquote good fire. Um, and I would say that our fire here is a, is a great example of that. And also, you know, what I will say too is that like like we've been talking about indigenous people have stewarded their landscapes with fire since time immemorial and did so in what I would say is absolutely a great example of good fire, you know, um, having this like holistic 
knowledge of their landscapes and what their landscapes need. And one thing I try to remind myself of, you know, as a, as a Western trained scientist, like it's been um, a big breakthrough for me, um, you know, maybe reading literature, like, for example, by Robin Wall Kimmerer is just thinking about like, we are a part of our ecosystems, fundamentally. And um, there's kind of this tendency in Western science to like remove humans from the landscape, um, whether that's through research or through conservation. It's like all of this ideology of like, you know, the roots of like, environmentalism which have been predominantly like whitewashed we we tend to like uh excerpt ourselves and I think honestly there's like maybe a little bit of shame there um and I think we need to really think our, of ourselves as a part of our landscapes and as like good um you know stewards of our landscapes like what are we doing to give back to our lands and waters and uh, actually, this this conference that I was at recently, I um, I had the absolute privilege to attend this conference sponsored by Patagonia. It was called Tools for Grassroots Activism. And I was there through some work, um, a part-time job that I have with the Gunnison Public Lands Initiative. But they had this amazing session that was led by Jose Gonzalez of Latino Outdoors, um, kind of talking about, like, how can we be good fire tenders, like using prescribed fire as a metaphor for like how we can like do the good work. And um, I really took a lot of power from that thinking about like, you know, yeah, how, how are we like tending our landscapes or tending even just like our emotional landscapes, like our, our community landscapes, um, what areas of our work, what areas of our um, society need like a quote unquote prescribed burn, um, thinking about the ways that we can make our communities and our work more resilient over time. And so I guess getting back to the, the question of like good fire and particularly attributing to indigenous folks is there's a lot of good fire happening um, just right now, you know, like the, I'm, I'm not familiar with all the groups in America that are stewarding their landscapes through cultural burning, but the, um, the Yurok and the Carrick tribes are doing amazing work in Northern California. Um, I had the privilege of, going to the ESA conference this year and going on a field trip led by Frank Lake, who is a really prominent indigenous uh, forester. And yeah, just learning about like how people are getting out there and managing their landscapes, especially in a fire prone region like California, I think, um, and doing these things called training exchanges. Another excellent person is uh, Margot Robbins. She does these training exchanges um, in her region in Northern California, and she's actually been a partner on some literature that's come out of. We had a session and a workshop at my university last year on like wilderness and fire and like um, kind of thinking, rethinking the concept of like wilderness being this like untouched, untrammeled, you know, conservation, like white dominated, white management led uh, concept and like thinking, oh, well, if we're suppressing fire in wilderness, when those wilderness areas need fire ecologically, like, are we not actually trammeling that landscape by suppressing fire? So yeah, I think there's a lot of great examples of good fire. Obviously, our, our landscapes are very um, imbalanced now. And so the prevalence of quote unquote bad fire, you know, the fire is like the East Troublesome fire, the fire is like the Lahaina fire, um, are not examples of good fire. And that is um, absolutely a consequence of just, I think, our our own egotism um, as humans and yeah, like colonialism, like I said. 
So, you know, you talked about this a little bit, but I do want to just ask it again and make sure we, we all understand everyone who's listening, um, can really understand this, but what are ways in which we can limit the impacts of wildfires and how can we prevent them from worsening and talking about, again, the ones that aren't quote unquote, good wildfires or are being exacerbated by climate change? Yeah, absolutely. So in my work, like something that we talk about constantly is just forest management. Like we need proactive, deliberate, and intentional forest management. And that um, is in the form of prescribed burning, mechanical thinning, which is essentially just like reducing forest density so that, you know, we're not seeing this fuel continuity and this like excessive rate of spread with fires. Also kind of like what I touched on, avoiding suppression, avoiding fire suppression in low risk areas. Like in order to make our ecosystems more resilient to fire, we're going to have to be comfortable with fire. And it's better in my opinion and in, you know, the scientific opinion too, to have more, you know, frequent low severity fire, um, especially in ecosystems that are adapted to that kind of fire regime, than, you know, trying to block out every little naturally ignited fire um, and um, then seeing a big blow up in the future because of the consequence of, you know, fuel buildup and climate change, um, kind of making those, those forests drier and more arid. I also think just like getting creative, like I said, you know, thinking about ways that we can mitigate fire naturally, like maybe thinking about more fire resilient um, plants. And obviously, you know, we would want those plants or those trees to be, you know, a part of that natural ecosystem. Like, for example, touching on the Lahaina fire, Um, I I learned when I was at ESA that 25 to 26% of the vegetation across the Hawaiian islands is invasive, fire-prone grasses and shrubs. And that is a consequence of, you know, Americans conquering the Hawaiian kingdom and bringing in their invasive plants and converting land to sugarcane and pineapple agriculture and diverting water and altering the natural wetlands of that region. The thing is, is that those ecosystems are not fire adapted, but when you're putting plants that are fire prone on a landscape where they're not supposed to be, then we're going to see these like incredible blowups of fire. And um, I really hope that what happened in Lahaina is going to empower the communities to like really like be able to rebuild and restore like through the the indigenous lens, you know, through the historical lens. And um, I I don't know enough about, um, you know, some of the politics and some of the, the governance and issues that they've been going through right now to really talk about that. But what I will say is that like the native Hawaiians must lead the way on that restoration. I guess what I can also say is um, we're going to need a lot of funding to be able to do something like this, you know, like Like I said, a lot of our forests are really dense based on the consequences of fire suppression and clear cut logging and and other elements like cattle grazing and emission of cultural burning. But there's the capacity. It's kind of like finding the the balance between capacity and action. And so um, I know that in the infrastructure bill that they allocated about $5 million to wildfire mitigation. Um, going to USDA and the Department of the Interior. Um, however, I I don't know necessarily if that will be enough. I, I don't know enough about money and economy and like all of those moving parts, but 
um, I think we're going to have to put a lot more funding to forest management to make our ecosystems more resilient. Also, um, a concept that was introduced at this conference um, was this term called citizen forestry. And so I kind of like got my inspiration going of just like, what if we, you know, put it in the hands of locals who know their ecosystems best, you know, instead of like making the decisions from Washington, D.C. on what a landscape needs, like letting private landowners or, you know, indigenous people of that region um, letting them kind of take the charge on like what needs to be done. And again, like relating back to like some of the training exchanges and the amazing work that's happening in Northern California, I think could be like a really solid um, blueprint for that um, throughout a lot of regions in the West. Um, other ways that we can limit the impacts, um, I would say um, kind of like taking a step back and just thinking about you know, why, um, <laughs> why our wildfires are so terrible. Um, climate change is a huge element of that. And in order to mitigate our wildfires, we have to mitigate climate change. And in order to do that, it's going to take a massive deinvestment from fossil fuel infrastructure. It's been impressively like, it's been tough to reconcile with you know, our current administration is doing all this amazing work with like 30 by 30 and funding conservation and um, biodiversity. However, they're also funding projects like the Willow Project and uh, offshore oil drilling. And we simply cannot have both. Um, I know that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, moving parts there, you know, and like I said, I'm not an economist, I'm a scientist. So I can't really say exactly where money should go and where it shouldn't go. Um, but we need to really, really take charge on changing our dependencies um, on our energy and um, just really like addressing resource overconsumption in general. What I will say is like the element, I think the 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 tendency of overconsumption is absolutely like, very Eurocentric and is also kind of an extension of colonialism and just like we have to develop all of our landscapes and we have to monetize them and we have to go in a direction that is historically incompatible with what it means for us to really be human. And so I think um, addressing climate change at the root instead of, you know, putting Band-Aid solutions is really going to be like the best way, in my opinion. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like summing up a little bit, some of that was like science, indigenous knowledge, local and frontline communities must be informing policies. They must be informing land management and how people use their land, especially the communities who are living on their land. They know what's best for their land and who are being Absolutely. impacted. Yeah. Who are impacted by these policies and impacted by the repercussions of climate change. Um, you know, and fossil fuels and divesting from fossil fuels. Loved that. I had to, had to put in some snaps for that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think it's just, it's hard too. I think one thing that I'll say, just continuing on that, it's, it's hard as a scientist um, because I think a lot of scientists kind of stay in their own bubble um, of like doing the work. And that's not to say that that's not incredibly noble, but in the last few years, and particularly, I've just come around to the realization that just doing science isn't enough. You know, there has to be action with that science. There has to be implementation. But there also has to be like, um, yeah, just like standing up to that infrastructure. Because like, in my opinion, it's kind of hard, like studying extreme fire spread events and being like, oh, OK, like we're seeing like, you know, just how terrible these things are, what they could do for our landscapes. And like, but then being like, OK, well 
I did my research, like time to move on. It's like, no, like, what am I going to do as a scientist and, and as a human being and as an environmentalist and um, as an ally to like really mitigate that? And, and it really starts with um, combating fossil fuel infrastructure and, and the, the fossil fuel groups that have known about climate change for decades decades you know like back to the 1950s 1970s they've been predicting all of this and and I really hope in our lifetime like taking inspiration from like some of the stuff that's been happening in Montana for example where the youth successfully sued um California is suing big oil right now like I I hope that that momentum only keeps growing um so that you know we can all really do what it takes to ensure a livable future for all of us yeah, no, it's so important. I, I think we are going to continue to see that momentum. I know many indigenous groups in um, other parts of the world. I'm not really sure all, all of the <laughs> exact court cases that are happening, but so many indigenous mm-hmm. groups are winning their court cases in other parts of the world. And and this is amazing. You know, we we are seeing that continue and that that spark. And I hope, like you said, it just continues and it grows that we we're seeing that we are going to change this, right? We don't have a choice. Yeah. And, we are going to change this. Um, so yeah, what what gives you hope in terms of the environment and the work that you do? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Because um, I, I think it can be really hard, especially as a, a Western trained scientist. Um, I, I've struggled with the terms of like climate optimist, climate doomist. Like I think maybe I'm somewhere in the middle, but I've tried to tend more toward optimism. One thing I'll say is uh, I want to circle back to the the concept of serotony that we talked about with lodgepole pine and how sometimes trees need this extreme heat to drop their cones and release their seeds into the soil to, you know, regenerate over time. And I kind of feel like the current landscape of the climate crisis is in a way doing that and and kind of projecting new seeds into the soil. And and I think we all hear that that quote, I can't remember who said it, but like um they tried to bury us. They didn't know they were we were seeds. And I kind of feel there's a a crossover there of just like, we're kind of seeing the extreme heat, but in a way that heat is like ushering so many more change makers and people who are motivated to make and see a better future. And it sucks that it has to be this extreme heat and these extreme events like wildfires, floods. Um, I I mean, but at the same time, it is really kind of, giving us this like proliferation of um of new activists and new environmentalists that are dedicated to making the change in whatever way that they can. So that gives me hope. Like I said, I just came from a really amazing conference on grassroots activism where I met a lot of those seeds um, and got to meet all these different people doing amazing work around food justice or moving away from oil and gas infrastructure or climate justice. And, and there's just there's so many people in our generations that have the the tools or have the background, like this very special background and experience and, and way um, in their own lives that are driving change. And organizing is like an ecosystem, you know, like everybody has their part. And like, you know, I, I try to think about this a lot as like, you know, the the littlest microbe to the littlest plant to like the biggest carnivore, like they all have their role. And so I would just say like tuning into what exactly is your role in this movement is so important, you know, and, and um, it takes truly an ecosystem of people 
um, to kind of achieve a healthy balance. Um, I'll also say that I have a lot of hope in this work. Um, you know, I've, I've attended a lot of ecological conferences this and last year, and just the prominence of indigenous knowledge has been so um, inspiring to me. I think as an ecologist, like I'm, I'm an absolute proponent and supporter of traditional ecological knowledge and, you know, land back, making sure that indigenous people have not only access to their historical lands, but are given the tools and the support and the funding to be able to manage those lands. I think that we will not be able to mitigate the climate crisis without that, um, because they have this this sacred, like longstanding knowledge of, of place. And I think, in my opinion, it's bad science to not honor that knowledge and to overlook that knowledge would just be bad ecology, in my opinion. But I have been really inspired, like listening to talks on decolonizing ecology or indigenous data sovereignty. This conference that I was at, our keynote speaker was um, this woman named Amy Cordalis, and she's a Yurok woman. And she gave this talk about how they have successfully um, achieved um, an agreement to remove all four dams on the Kalamath River to help increase salmon um, migration and spawning, um, which are obviously very sacred animals to them. And so she actually brought pieces of the dam and gave this, these chunks of the dam to like the Patagonia CEO. And it was just like so inspiring. I was like, hell yeah, like let's, you know, and, and that's the thing is like, you know, the way that we've dammed our rivers, the way that we've suppressed fire from our forests, the way that we've altered our coastlines, you know, like we have changed our ecosystems in such drastic ways, but that doesn't mean that we can't change our ecosystems in drastic ways for the better. Um, and that's something that I always try to remind myself of is like the 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 rate of change of our ecosystems has been so significant, but that also in a weird way gives me a silver lining that like there's also potential to 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 spin that around and to kind of direct ecosystem change for the better. And then finally, I'll say that adapting to change whether it's climate change or, you know, the way that our world is changing. Um, it's really a fundamental part of just being an organism. And I'm reading this excellent book. It's called Inheritors of the Earth and essentially kind of talks about how species have adapted, you know, throughout time to like increased change and, you know, kind of like untangles like the benchmarks that we use of like, oh, you know, well, like this species has been declining since 1970. It's like, well, this species wasn't there 300 years ago, you know? And, and so kind of just thinking about the nuance of that, like we will be able to adapt to change. And the, the important thing is we'll only be able to do that together in cooperation with one another. And so I think that gives me a lot of inspiration in, in a world that can be very heavy, you know, I, I think there's a lot of promise and we're only as good as our ecosystems, um, literally and metaphorically. Well, I love all of that, all of those reasons to be hopeful that give me new reasons to be hopeful, but you know, something I always say in almost every podcast, and I think almost everyone touches on it is community. Community yeah. is so important and we are seeing so much more community. Like you said in the beginning metaphor, you know, People are coming out of everywhere <laughs> to support climate change and to support people taking action on climate change. Um, so I think right now we just need to continue to be welcoming and allow more people to join this space and 
we need everyone. And so, yeah, I think that was beautiful and amazing. Is there anything else that you want to add? Um, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for like, um, you know, leading a podcast like this, you know, I think it takes a lot of grace. I think like hope, um, can sometimes be more of a difficult emotion than, you know, negative emotions like fear. And so I think like cultivating and like really being intentional with that feeling and and with that, yeah, with that mentality is, is so crucial for this movement. And, And there is hope, you know, like I think, that I think I really love that our generations have kind of like tried to flip the narrative on, you know, quote unquote, climate doomism, because like, not only is that not effective for, you know, rallying communities um, behind climate action, but it's also just not all part of the story. You know, there's, there's beautiful things happening every day. There's ecosystems rebounding in ways that we never imagined. You know, there's biodiversity in areas that have been massively transformed by industrialism. You know, I, I think like going back to that thing, like adaptation to change is, is truly fundamental to, to life. And yeah, I think, uh, being able to take all that and just kind of like connect to your communities and connect to your purpose, whether that is, you know, organizing against fossil fuels, whether that is ecosystem restoration, or whether that is, you know, um, doing a podcast to like kind of put all of these ideas out into the landscape and into the greater ecosystem of society, I think is um, really important. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing all your wisdom with us. It was really amazing. (laughs) And I I know that people will love this. So just so everybody knows as well in the episode description, I'll put links and resources to the people we discussed and referenced in the episode um, and any other, we'll put more resources as well for things like learning more about fire um, and how you can support those who've been impacted by fire. Um, So thank you again for listening to the episode and thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And that wraps up this episode of the Hopeful Environmentalist. Thank you so much for listening and please make sure to leave a positive review, share it with your family and friends, and just help share this resource to make it more accessible to everyone. Thank you again for listening to the Hopeful Environmentalist and always remember to stay hopeful and create positive change.